There are shows in this world that we will never fully understand, understand, except Ghost Adventures. We have watched every episode to build our obsession, our fandom, watching alongside each other because no one we know really gives a damn, gives a damn. Watching Zack and crew catch groundbreaking proof of the paranormal, inspiring us to explore our own interest in otherworldly phenomena. This is our podcast. We are Paranormal Juntas. Hey, 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 everybody. It's me, Leah. And it's me. Bethany. And we're the Paranormal Putas. Nickelodeon. <laughs> and we're very excited because this episode is unlike any other episode before it. Ooh, do tell me more. I'm, in, I'm intrigued. Ooh, I hope that you are because we have Ed Sweeney of Slightly Odd Fitchburg. And this guy is an amazing, funny smart dude he knows his history he's out in massachusetts and he is just so much fun he actually hit us up via email a while ago and was like hey guys i got some history for y'all some real spooky stuff some real cool stuff and maybe a little ghost adventure stuff and we were like yes please <laughs> and uh and we're finally at this point where we get to share all his insights with y'all and it's just a fucking hoot yeah, I'm super stoked for you guys to hear this one, um, especially because, you know, because Ed is in Massachusetts, you know, uh, when we were emailing, we were throwing ideas about like what he mm -hmm. was going to present and talk about. And I was like, look, man, I don't want Salem witch trial shit. You know, everybody talks about that. Everybody knows about it. What were the natives up to? Yeah. You know, give me some stuff about, you know, the native roots and shit. And he was like, oh, man, I just posted some stuff about it. I've got all this great stuff. So he came on and gave us something about Massachusetts uh, that's not revolving around the Salem witch trials. And I think that's <laughs> fucking cool. It's such a palate cleanser, you know, <laughs> and it's such cool history and awesome stories and like really creepy stuff. So it was it's so good. Yeah. And we hope you enjoy his uh, storytelling skills. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't hope. We know you're going to enjoy his storytelling skills. So here we go. All right, Ed, thank you so, so much for being here with us today. We are so excited uh, to give our listeners the opportunity to hear some awesome history, uh, some folklore, and of course, maybe a little bit about where our favorite guys have visited uh, in, the, in the area. So if you could introduce yourself, let everybody know who you are, and uh, let's jump in. Yep, absolutely. My name is Ed Sweeney. I live in New England. I moved out of the city about three years ago into kind of central Massachusetts area, at which time I decided to kind of explore the area with my site Slightly Odd Fitchburg, where I document odd and haunted history from the greater New England area. And today we're going to start off with, um, with Puck Wedgies. So thank you for having me, and I will just get into it. Awesome. So, so in the area, if you just mention the name Hockamock Swamp in New England, you're going to conjure a lot of images of things like ghosts, monsters, mosquitoes, that kind of thing. Uh, but that's really just a surface level understanding. If you know what's going on, then anybody you talk to about it is going to think of Puckwudgies right away. And in order to figure out what a Puckwudgie is, you have to understand where they actually live. 
That's why I'm going to start with a brief geography of a place called Hockabock Swamp. So, first off, it is the largest freshwater swamp in Massachusetts. It's almost 17,000 acres, and that's really big. So, if you want to think about that in football fields, one football field is one acre. That means that this place is 17,000 football fields big. It's sits in the northern part of southeastern Massachusetts, and it's filled with things like mink, fisher cats, bobcats, and probably a lot of things we haven't even, we haven't even seen in there yet. It's also part of six different cities and towns, and part of the infamous Bridgewater Triangle, which is a whole thing all on its own. But that's not to say it's devoid of people. It's actually the opposite of that. This, this swamp has been inhabited by native populations going all the way back to 7,050 BCE. So we can do the football math on that again, actually. It takes an athletic person 10 seconds to run one football field. That means that the Hockamock Swamp is 90,720 football fields old. And on top of that, it's actually worshipped as a deity by the various native groups in the area. The Algonquin gave it its name of Hockamock, which translates to a place where spirits dwell. They used it for hunting, fishing, gathering, and also as a burial ground, but it doesn't end there. It was used as kind of like a grocery store slash cemetery, but it was also feared by the natives. The name Hockamock is actually interchangeable with the name Hobamock. And the difference between those two words changes the meaning from a place of spirits to the native deity of death and disease. That was his name. And this, this god was made out of the souls of the dead. And they thought that he just kind of hung out in Hockamock whenever he needed to get out of the house for a few hours. So that's how you end up with a swamp that both gives and takes life. And it's no mystery that these natives feared and revered it at the same time. All this was fine and good while the Wampanoag and the Algonquin were the only families on the block, but the neighborhood kind of went to hell as soon as the English moved in down the street. The settlers started showing up in big numbers in the early 17th century and immediately started to redecorate the area. So with so many things going on for them, like trying not to freeze to death or starve to death, the settlers saw the Hockamock Swamp as a complete waste of their time and land. They couldn't settle it, so they either completely ignored it or tried to destroy it off and on. The, they started efforts to drain it in the 18th century and kept going all the way up to the 19th century. But luckily, none of the attempts ever went anywhere because it turns out that this giant swamp is a natural flood control for the entire region. It sucks up all the water that would otherwise flood the entirety of southeastern Massachusetts, so it's a really good thing that they didn't get it on, that they didn't get it right. So around this time, we get to King Philip's War which goes by a few different names. It's been called the First Indian War, Metacomet's War, Metacomet's Rebellion, and a few others. But all you really need to know about it is that it was a really long and really bloody conflict that took thousands of lives and displaced even more people. It also needs to be said that Metacomet and King Philip are both the same person. One is his native name and the other is his English name. So, Metacomet's father, Massasoit, originally created an alliance with the English colonists that were settling in the area, and everything was all well and good. But then Metacomet, uh, Massasoit, sorry, passed away. And this was in 1662, 
and King Philip took over the role as the tribal leader. And he just he just got on the throne and he was just like, nope, I'm good. We don't need that alliance anymore. We're done. So he he had he had his own reasons for doing it, but what really matters is that the Wampanoag then immediately went to war with the colonists. And while they're fighting, they needed a place to kind of hole up while the you know where the English wouldn't be able to attack them. And that place, of course, was Hockabock Swamp. So King Philip built this massive fortress in the swamp and used it as the staging point for his raids against the colonists. What made it so great for him was that the Wampanoag warriors were able to strike the enemy with the ferocity of a full frontal assault and then just disappear back in the swamp where all the spirits and native cemeteries were. And the English colonists, for their part, were just like, nope, I'm not running into a ghost swamp, I'm done. And the, the native warriors were just able to disappear. And that's how the war went for many years. <clears throat> so that's... That's a really quick recap of, of the history and what was going on. The King Philip's War was a brutal, brutal conflict. People were kidnapped, and actually the world's first selling novel came out of that war. By It was written by a colonial woman who was kidnapped by the natives and kept with them for a number of weeks until she was discharged, and she wrote all about it. Is But... At this point, we can probably start talking about some of the monsters um, that are in the area. So, in researching the whole thing, some of it is going to go into the the Bridgewater Triangle, but it's kind of close enough to think of it all as one whole thing, because the Bridgewater Triangle is thought to be a paranormal vortex. And what that means is that all the paranormal encounters that you can think of can really be found there. And the center of that vortex comes right down on Hockamock Swamp, where King Philip had his fortress, and there was a ton of death and blood and stuff. It's been inhabited for thousands, almost 10,000 years, so it's really, it's really not crazy to think that there's a lot of death associated, and if there's really one place where you're going to be able to cross <laughs> the void between one world and the next, it has to be there. So first off, there is a Bigfoot-like creature that's been seen several times in the swamp. Now, it's not Bigfoot. It's Bigfoot-like. Um, it's an unknown creature <clears throat> that looks a lot like him, but he was first seen in 1978 by a man named Joe D'Andrade. He was 24 years old and standing on the shore of Clay Banks, which is a pond by the swamp, when, quote... For some reason, I had to turn around. It was a chill or something inside me. And I turned around, and there, off to the right, maybe 200 yards away, there was this, well, I don't know what it was. It was a creature that was all brown and hairy, hairy with a big, apish, and man thing. It was making its way for the woods, but I didn't stick around long enough to watch where it was going. I ran for the street, end quote. So seeing this thing affected this guy so much that he ended up leading a bunch of expeditions into the swamp to find the creature again. Um, but unfortunately, D'Andrade would never come across it. But he's not the only one who's ever seen it. About five years later, a fur trapper by the name of John Baker had his own experience while traveling in his, in his canoe one night. 
and according to him, quote, I knew it wasn't a human because when it passed by me, I could smell it. It smelled like a skunk, musty and dirty, end quote. And he could never explain what he what he saw. And you have to keep in mind that this guy was a fur trapper. So he, he's seeing animals all the time. You know, he knows what he's looking at. If he sees something big and hairy that's somewhere else like a skunk, he doesn't know what it is. That's kind of strange. And <clears throat> I mean, unless it was him smelling like a skunk, but, you know, no reason to think about that. So it's not just about the um, earthbound creatures in the area, though. There are enough Hockamock Swamp UFO sightings to make a mid to late 90s TV show on Fox about them. <laughs> For instance, there was the sighting by two undertakers back in 1908. Now, they, they don't say if they're like carrying a body with them or anything like that, but they were traveling from West Bridgewater to Bridgewater. So west, not west of Bridgewater, on Halloween night. And they ended up seeing what looks like a giant lantern in the sky. It hovers over them for almost 40 minutes before disappearing. Then there was another sighting by a woman named Courtney Cullen in 1999. And she was at a cookout in Bridgewater and most likely listening to 1999 on Prince, by Prince on a Loop, which is what I would have been doing back then when just everything changed for her. Now, since this woman in her quote uses the word wicked, which is a New England thing, I'm honor bound to read her quote in a New England accent. So, quote, suddenly there was a loud, wicked, loud noise, and next there were lights in the sky, no color, but just bright lights. They were descending fast, like coming straight at the house behind where we were at the cookout. And just as it seemed that the lights were going to crash into the house, they dotted sideways at this unbelievable speed, and soon they just disappeared. But what I also remembered is that soon after we saw the lights, more than one helicopter appeared in the sky in the area where the lights were, unquote. I have no idea if she actually sounds like that. She probably not, doesn't. I'm just being mean, but she used the word wicked. So it's always a big deal when a New Englander uses the word wicked. And also a big deal when you get military helicopters chasing weird lights in the skies above you. There was another sighting in 1968 when five people say that they saw a ball of light in the trees of Rehoboth. Rehoboth is, it's a whole other thing. It's this tiny, tiny, tiny little place with a ton of activity. But that's a, that's a different conversation. And then in 1994, there was a Bridgewater police officer who was a trained you know, observer because he's, he's a cop, obviously. And he reported seeing a triangular, a triangular craft with red and white lights over his cruiser. So the longer you look at this stuff, the more UFO sightings you come across. There, there's no end to them. They just keep going and going and going. Um, but one of the coolest things I think about this area is something called Dighton Rock. And just like it says in the name, it's a rock. It's a 40-ton boulder that's, getting back to football fields, the size of 127th of a football field. Now, that translates to 11 feet long if you don't think of everything in football fields for some reason. And what sets it apart is the fact that it's covered in lots of, of hieroglyphs. They were first discovered in 1680 when English colonist Reverend John Danforth shared a drawing of it with his church friends um, or, or his congregation. 
it was also described by another reverend in 1690, this one by the name of Cotton Mather. And if, as you probably know, Cotton Mather was one of the main characters in the story of the Salem Witch Trials. So he thought it was weird and he was, you know, talking to witches for most of his time. So the point of it is that no one knows where these hieroglyphs come from. They're just crazy. They can't be they can't be nailed down. There are people who think they're from Native Americans, people who think they're from the Vikings, people who think they're from the Chinese, people who think they're from the Phoenicians, and people who think they're from the Portuguese. And once again, this is 1680. That means that the carvings would have been made long before any of these people were supposed to be in the New World. But if you actually dig enough, all those different options actually have a little basis in historical fact, or at least historical theory. So it's not that crazy, but it's weird to think of a pre-Columbian Phoenician or Portuguese ship landing in New England and just making these hieroglyphs on a, on a rock, especially given the time frame of when they were found in 1680. So there's that. That's just a personal little thing that I like. So now we can actually talk about some cool stuff. We can talk about ghosts of the area. Just like UFOs, there are a lot of ghosts associated with Hockabuck Swamp. You could write book after book after book on these things. So uh, King Philip, also known as Metacomet, had his fortress in Hockabuck Swamp. So even though the colonists didn't enjoy following them, following them into ghost territory, sometimes it happened. There were battles. There were lots of battles in the swamp and surrounding the area. A lot of people died. So anytime there's a battlefield, misery, suffering, you can find ghosts. So there are actually some claims that the Wampanoag people, King Philip's people, just cursed the land to be haunted for eternity. And... We have to keep in mind is that this war, it cost 3,000 lives, from just the Wampanoag alone. And other people in the tribe were sold off into slavery. So you can't have that much misery in one place and not have it be haunted. And also, it wasn't just the warriors getting killed. I mean, it was on their, on their land. So that means women, children, everything, just nothing good. So there are lots of stories of people going missing in the swamp and there are lots and lots of stories of those missing persons showing up to the people searching for them and leading them directly to their corpses. On top of that, there are just a crazy number of murder victims found within the, within the swamp. Um, it's just, it's just, it's so big and so vast that you just, you just have to bury your victims there if that's your thing. <laughs> so we have ghosts, we have UFOs, we have um, a Bigfoot type thing, and now we can get to Puckwudgies. The one big thing to know right off the bat with Puckwudgies is that they're native lore for many different native populations. And most of these populations have kind of come up with them on their own, which is really strange. So there are five different nations that span a whole lot of territory. Uh, Pukwudgies are part of the history of New England, southeastern Canada, 
and as far away as the Great Lakes. So this also means that the Pukwudgie lore from any specific group or area has its own unique things going on for it. For instance, the Great Lakes Pukwudgies are pretty much harmless. They're mischievous, but not evil. <clears throat> they like to play tricks on humans, but they're never mean-spirited about it. So it's kind of the difference between a guy who puts a whoopee cushion on your chair and a guy who ties your shoelaces together so you trip and fall into a fire pit on the camping trip. And then we talk about the Pukwudgies from northern New England. Now, these guys cover parts of Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and actually southeastern parts of Canada, like Quebec and Ontario. So once again, these Pukwudgies are mostly harmless, but that doesn't mean they won't they won't mess you up. Um, if you go into their territory, if you disrespect them, which is a big thing, they, they're going to injure you or they're going to kill you. So then we get to the southern New England puck wedgies. And these are the ones that I know the most about and the ones that I talk the most about because they're the craziest ones. They're the ones that come from the Wampanoag tradition. And they're basically the hardest puck wedgies you can come across. They're mean, they're little, they want to make your they, they want to make your life miserable for no good reason. They play tricks on people, they steal your children. They've even been said to sabotage groups of people into deadly traps. They're the kind of people who are gonna steal your wallet during your bank account and then ask you for money the next day just to be jerks about it. And they live in the Hockabuck Swamp and are part of the Bridgewater Triangle. They're the meanest possible iteration of the things and they have to be the ones that we talk about. So, they're said to be about knee-high to a human, or around two feet tall. That varies. It goes up to four feet. They walk upright on two giant, two giant feet like a hobbit, but they're a little hunched over like a Sasquatch. And best of all, they have spikes running from their backs all the way up to their heads, just like a porcupine. So if you see one from behind, you think you're seeing a porcupine standing on its hind legs which is kind of cute if you think about it. But they're also magic. So they can turn themselves invisible when they want. They can make humans forget things, like why they're in the forest in the first place. They can confuse them with their powers. And it goes on from there. So they also have uh, pointy ears, a mouthful of jagged teeth, and a long nose or snout, kind of like a dog. So it's like a cross between a human and a whole and a troll, plus a little porcupine thrown in for good measure, just because it's fun. So on top of that, and being magic, they can also shapeshift. You have to imagine it as walking into the swamp, seeing this thing from behind that looks like a porcupine, turns around, you realize it's a troll. You start chasing after it, it gets bored after a few minutes, then it transforms into a bear and just balls you. Well, that's kind of what's going on with the puck wedges. And on top of that, they can cause a person harm just by staring at them. So they have like this death stare or something. And that's really a power that no one should ever have. I mean, I know if, if I had it, I would just, I would use it to smite my enemies, but then I'd probably start using it on people, you know, in front of me at the grocery store. So that's what a puck wedgie is. Now we can kind of talk about the origins. Now, just like most native lore and Marvel movies, there's always a prequel that explains where something came from. So the origin for these things is 
set back in Massachusetts, at least for these um, Wampanoag ones. And there are a few different versions, but one of them kind of has most of the information in it. And it all starts with a friendly native deity named Moshop. Now, Moshop was what's called a creation giant. That means that, well, he was a, he was a giant and he created things. So kind of like a creation god sort of thing. And this guy, he actually created Cape Cod. Now, if you don't know what Cape Cod is, it's a it's kind of a vacation town for really, really rich people. This is where, you know, U.S. presidents, Bill Gates, vacation. So that means that this mosh-up is kind of, you know, probably a rich guy himself. And he just needed a place to park his yacht on Sundays. So the Wampanoag really liked this deity. They kind of got the warm and fuzzies whenever they thought about him. Because he created this great place for fishing and feeding themselves and being kind of warm. So he was their caretaker, and they always had plenty of food to eat, and they were happy. But the Pukwudgies also existed right alongside this deity. And it turns out that they thought that they were trying just as hard to make the people of the idea happy, but weren't getting the recognition they deserved for it. So it's like a younger sibling whose finger painting doesn't get put quite as high in the fridge as his older brother, so he throws a tantrum. It's pretty much the same thing. Although, you know, not quite. So even though the Pukwudgies may have been trying to help, their need to play tricks on humans also made their good deeds backfire. So you got, like, coffee in the morning, but they also put black ink around the rim of the mug so you had to spend your entire day looking like the Joker. They would play tricks and scare people, and somehow the Wampanoag were less than grateful for it, and that upset them. So the Wampanoag finally had enough, and they decided to go see Granny Squanit. Granny Squanit was Moshop's wife, and they needed some guidance on what to do about these pesky Pukwudgies, and they came up with a simple plan. They, She told the men and women to go around and collect as many as they saw, and that once they did that, they were to bring them back to her husband. So they did that. They bring them back to Moshop, and he decides to just end it all. He takes all the annoying Pukwudgies, he winds up and he just throws them as far as he possibly can. This is how they end up covering so much land because they land all around the all around New England, southern Canada, and as far away as the Great Lakes. So he had a great arm for a rich guy. And then Moshop is just like, okay, I'm done. And he goes off. He literally goes on vacation. That's the myth. The myth is that he throws the puck wedges away and goes on vacation. So, while he's away, Pukwudgies get together, and rather than staying away like they're supposed to, they end up coming right back to Massachusetts, and that's a huge problem. So, at this point, they're really upset, <laughs> and they're not mischievous anymore. They're just mean. They're mean and angry, and they have a score to settle. So, they start... They find people in the woods and they lead them to their deaths. They start kidnapping the Wampanoag children. They never let them see their families again. Though so all the fun stuff is gone and they're just... They're burning down Wampanoag villages just to torture and kill as many of the people as they can. So they clearly have a score to settle and the Wampanoag start crying out for relief from Mashup. 
know, this guy knew what was going on, but he wasn't quite ready to end his vacation yet. That's what happens when you're dealing with a rich Cape Cotter. So rather than head back to deal with it, he sends his three sons out to fix the problem for him. Now, the thing about this is that I can't find the names of his children anywhere. So given that this guy lives in Cape Cod, I had to come up with, up with my own. So I just call his five sons, Thad, Chad, Hugo, Maximilian, and Theodore. So he sends them out. They show back up. They're with the Wampanoag, and they're out for blood. But things really don't go as planned. Because it turns out that you said when you send trust fund kin, kids out to fight, you know, wrong puck wudgie, things don't go well at all. So all five of them, you got Thad, you got Chad, you got Hugo, Maximilian, and even Theodore, they all get tricked by the puck wudgies and just brutally killed. Done. Gone. So Moshop finds out about this, and now he's angry enough to do something about it. So he cuts his vacation short, which was a big deal for somebody out in Cape Cod. And he gets together with his wife, and they just go tear-assing into Wampanoag country to clear out all the puckwedgies. And they just, they're just killing them left and right. They're smashing them. They're shooting them with bows and arrows. They're just going crazy. Things are on their side for a while, but really, you have to kind of think of it as an infestation. You can't just go into an infestation of bugs, start crushing them, and think you've done the job. They killed a lot of Pukwudgies, but many of them still survived. So they get back together, and they end up attacking Moshop, and they get their revenge. They overwhelm him, and they destroy this creator giant. And that's it for him. That's the end of his story. He completely disappears from Wampano lore after that. It's the, it's the sad end for creation god that was really loved and adored by his people. But the Pukwudgies are still around. There aren't as many of them, but they're still there. Now they're really evil. And they're not playing harmless pranks anymore. They know that their good deeds will never be recognized. They understand that they're never going to be loved as much as the long-dead Moshop. And now they just kill and torture for fun. They lead you astray into a bear's den. They burn down your village just to make you suffer. Pukwudgies now, he's, he's hardcore. And there's no god around to protect you anymore. And that's their history. So, uh, there are a few modern encounters that I can talk about. A lot of these are actually on YouTube. Um, I don't own them, so I can't use them, but you can do some searching and come up with a few, a few different videos. So, one of the first stories actually comes from the Boston Globe, which is a pretty big newspaper. It's the first-hand account of a guy named Bill Russo. And this happens one night when he's walking his dog, Samantha, back in 1995. So here is what the Boston Globe had to say about it. Uh, it was a late-night walk in Raynham, in a Raynham neighborhood. Uh, silent and still, lost in sleep. Suddenly, William Russo's dog, Samantha, began to shake and quiver. As he describes it, rattling like an old Chevy. Russo looked around, listened, and finally heard what was terrifying her. He heard, Ewan-Chu, Ewan-Chu, here, here, in a high-pitched wail. 
So he's looking around and then he sees it. It's in the circle of a street light. Uh, it's a creature unlike anything he had ever seen before. It was two to three feet tall, hot bellied, big eyed, covered in hair, and unclothed. So he's just like, nope, turns around and goes home. He's done. He doesn't want any part of it. So according to the globe, he's trying to make sense of it later on when he's back home. And he realizes that what this thing was saying when he was hearing E Wan Chu hear what it was saying or trying to say in English was we want you. We want you come here, come here. It was trying to beckon him into the woods where it was going to do whatever the hell it wanted to him. But he never sees it again. And then there's another story from 1993 and 1994 from a woman named Joan. And once again, she's walking her dog, Sid, on a Saturday morning. And once again, her dog grows skittish. And he kind of strays off the usual path. Joan follows him and finds him flat on the ground just staring at something. She looks around and she sees, quote, a strange troll-like creature that was two feet high with pale gray pale gray skin and hair on his arms and the top of his head. She also notes that the creature didn't have any clothes on. So, you know, these things were freaks. He also could have just still been in party mode Friday night. You know, who knows? Whatever. Anyway, its eyes were a deep green color and it had large lips and an elongated, almost canine-like canine-like nose. The thing just stands there staring at her until Snid snaps out of it and drags her back to the main trail. But unlike Bill's encounter, it doesn't end there. Joan is still visited by the Pukwudgie. She sees, she's seen it at least three times since that Saturday morning, and it's always just outside her bedroom. According to her, she's fully awake, and she has all of her senses about her, and she'll just see this creature just outside her window staring, staring at her while she's in her bed. Now, does she like it? Maybe a little. Does the puck, why'd you like it? Well, can't do something three different times and pretend you're only trying it out, so maybe puck, are just perverts. Who knows? And one more story from the 90s. This one happens to a paranormal investigator named Tim. So Tim's out in the forest in 1997 when a ball of light suddenly appears in front of him. Now, being an investigator, he follows it and he ends up in a thickly wooded area way off the beaten path. He tries to turn around and get back on track, but then he sees it. It's, quote, a two-foot-tall man-like creature making its way towards him, unquote. So needless to say, the investigator gets out of there. And just like Jones' encounter, though, that wasn't the last time he'd see it. A few years later, Tim's in a parking lot near the same forest. He looks at the tree line and boom, there it is. The same Pukwudgie right there, just staring at him. Then all of a sudden, Tim's car's engine just revs up out of nowhere. And the radio turns itself on at the same time. And that was all the convincing that Tim needed to get to have to turn around pale right out of the parking lot. With great vim and vigor, as you would say. So, if you come into contact with the puck wedgie how do you actually survive it well you really only have one option and that's to run if you find yourself alone in Hockamock swamp or off the beaten trail in the bridgewater forest just keep looking over your shoulder 
Listen very intently to the noises around you. You never know when a Pukwudgie is following you. You never know when one is staring at you. You certainly never know when one's natural inclinations for pranks convinces it to lure you to your doom just for fun. Pukwudgies are mean and they're angry. They've been wronged by the gods and they've been wronged by the human race. They still have a score to settle. So never let a Pukwudgie get the better of you because it will be a fatal mistake. And above all else, never ever send your five trust fund kids to fight the Pukwudgies for you. And that's the story of Pukwudgies. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> um, I think it's so cool that you look into the histories and, and these, these folklores and stuff. I'm wondering, have you ever, I mean, experienced anything yourself or is it just something you're interested in? It's just something I'm interested in. Um, much like the X-Files, uh, the poster, I want to believe. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really have any reason to. I would like a reason to, but, you know, we'll see what happens. Sometimes <laughs> I, I, I go to these places just to kind of goad whatever's there into showing itself to me, but it, it, it hasn't worked out yet. So we'll see. For now, it's just kind of really being fascinated by the history of this stuff and kind of the lore and how far back it goes especially from the area that's been, you know, settled at least by, you know, Europe since, you know, the 17th century. There's a lot going on. So there's a lot to discover. And once you get into the native lore, it just takes off. You're talking about thousands of years of stories, folklore. And it's really fascinating. It's really intriguing. So I like it and I try to share it. It's really uh, great because that's something that Bethany really kind of emphasizes. We, we, we would like to do more of the history digging, but just with time and what we do, like we don't really get to deep dive. So it's really cool to hear it. You can tell that you're passionate about it, that you're really interested in it. Um, so it was just really cool history to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. See, for, from my perspective, because I, I talk about this stuff so much, you know, the sightings and the hauntings and the possessions, that's what everybody else talks about. So it actually gives me the time to look into the actual history, which is what I think is really cool about the whole thing. All right, so so this is the, the S.K. Pierce Mansion, which is in Gardner, Massachusetts. And it's pretty much thought of as one of the most haunted buildings in the area. And to kind of understand what's going on with it, you have to delve into the history of the mansion itself. So there's no history of the mansion without the history of the guy who built it, Sylvester Knowlton Pierce, or S.K. Pierce. And he was born to Jonas and Aksa on the 11th of April in 1820. And it was kind of a, a poor upbringing. His parents didn't have a whole lot to give him. Not for lack of trying, though. It's just the way that it was, especially back in the 1800s. I mean, the, the only hobby you could have back then was having kids. So you know, that's just how it was. So he had six older siblings and lived a simple and modest upbringing, working odd jobs, trying to make ends meet. Um, and then things started to change for him once he got into a, kind of the furniture business, which we'll talk about in a second, but this guy goes from literal rags to basically, even today he would be considered one of the richest people around. And he did all this in one lifetime. So he was like a self-made guy. And his father ends up dying when he's three years old. 
and his mother dies when he's 11. So now he's just like this orphan and he gets taken in by his paternal aunt and her husband until the age of 14. Then he moves in with yet another set of aunt and uncle who live on a farm. This time he only lives there for about a year and he ends up going to work at a chair factory in Gardner, Massachusetts. And once again, he stays at this chair factory for one year before going off to work for a different chair factory. So this guy knows chairs. Chairs is his life. Chairs is his business. He's all about the chair. So when that factory ends up locating to a different city, he changes employment yet again and ends up working for a guy named Stephen Taylor, who owns yet another chair factory. He goes, people just needed chairs back then, man. That, that was it. You, you had kids and you sat on chairs. That was life. So... Uh, he gets taken on as employee. This time he spends five years at it. Um, but what his boss doesn't realize is that SK Pierce is kind of up to his own thing this whole time. He's 25 years old at this point, and he's been working since the age of 15. And what he's been doing that time is saving every last cent that he possibly could. So he's he has a job. He's in his 20s, but he's not living a crazy lifestyle. He's just putting it all away. And then 1845, this kind of broke orphan from three different families, ends up buying Stephen Taylor's chair factory. And he ends up turning it into the third largest furniture manufacturer in the entire country. And it also needs to be noted that Gardner, Massachusetts is the mecca of furniture back then in the 19th century. And so much of furniture was made back then that it's still known to this day as Chair City. And if you go to the center of Gardner, they actually have this giant red chair. That's like their big mascot for the city, the plaque and all this other stuff. So anyway, the time comes for SK Pierce to kind of build his own house. And he's just, he's just balling it right now. So he ends up building a mansion. Because he's rich and he wants to look rich. And he wants to be thought of as rich. And that's his social status. So he ends up buying a small house across the street from his, from his factory and just has it demolished. Then he uses that foundation to build this giant Victorian mansion that still stands to this day. <clears throat> he started in 1875. It's 6,661 square feet. Three floors. 26 rooms and a grand sweeping staircase right at the entrance. So it's basically just a monument to the money that this guy's made and even today you go there and Gardner's a small place and this mansion is just a big part of this of the city skyline. <clears throat> so he hires a couple hundred men to build the whole thing and they get it done in a year and you know he's a furniture guy so he tricks it out with carvings and this fancy new thing called gas lighting and this even fancier thing called heat, which is nice back then. You have, you know, a furnace that's heating from the basement. So he's basically, he's tricking everything out with like old timey woodworking, but still like putting in the Alexa and the Siri and all that other stuff. Cause he's just the kind of guy he is. I kind of like him. when you walk down the street, it's still, it's at four West Broadway and Gardner. And you walk down the street and then you're just kind of taken away by this massive walkway that goes up and up the stairs. 
three massive bay windows, double windows, a widow's walk. Um, it's it's impressive, and you look at it, and the thing just looks haunted. There's no way around it. I mean, you can see some. You can look at something and just go, "Well, that has to be haunted." Come on. And this mansion, that was one of those. This it's one of those places. And so SK Pierce is just living the good life. His mansion's built. He's got his family, and he's has tons of famous people visiting him. It's just to name a few of people who have been in this house. You have P.T. Barnum. You have Betty Davis. You have Norman Rockwell. You have President Calvin Coolidge. Those are just a few of the people who have been there. And what's cool about it is that he has, he actually has his own pool room up on the third floor of the house, which is where, like, the titans of industry, all this, the leaders of the country back then get together to smoke cigars and play pool and talk about kids and their damn music these days. And it's just a fascinating place. So, unfortunately, things don't stay great for long. Um, S.K. Pierce's wife, Susan Pierce, and the mother of his children, she only lasts a few weeks in the house before she dies. And she dies in the house. And it's a battle with erysipelas, is how I believe it's pronounced. It's a bacterial infection, tons of pain, lesions all across her face and hands. Not a good way to go. And it happens in the house. That was built for her and her family. But, you know, you gotta move on, you gotta move on. S.K. Pierce ends up marrying a much younger woman three years later. Um, He's pushing 60 now, and the woman he marries, Ellen West, is 28 years old. Now, it's it's not crazy for a much older widow to marry a younger woman back then. It's not crazy today. But his family had a huge problem with it. His, his kids just, they were upset because they saw this woman, it's pretty much their age. They see her as this upwardly mobile person who's just trying to take advantage of their rich father and gain social status from it. And all this other crap, so they don't like her. And they're not completely off base either. Um, Ellen West, she was an active member of the local church and several community groups. So it seemed like she was trying to get somewhere. But still, you know, they had a good marriage and they end up having a few kids together of their own. And so, you know, everything's kind of working. It gets to the point where she becomes such a big part of the family that actually still to this day, there's a safe in the house that has her her name on it on the second floor. And back then, getting a safe with your name on it was the same as like getting your name on the company stationery. And she was there. She was making a decision. She was a big part of the whole thing. Kids fuming the whole time, but whatever. Uh, In fact, I think the oldest, uh, Frank, was one of her biggest attractors. Um, he was most closely associated with the company, um, sort of in his father's waning years. And he wanted to, he wanted it to remain a family business, except for his stepmother and, you know, step siblings. So that's not going to end well. Um, and of course, Ellen, for her part, she did nothing but talk crap about the other kids, man. 
just any chance she got. She was bad-mouthing him all over town. She's accusing Frank of squandering his, his father's wealth. And she ends up setting up her youngest son, Edward, as the sole proprietor of the property in the event of SK's demise. And once that happens, the, most of the other kids are just like, all right, whatever, that's it. It's done. She won. And they end up mo moving away from the house. And that kind of sets up this war to go on within the family because SK Pierce the guy who built the whole thing, one of the richest men in the country, one of the biggest titans of industry, died on January 28th, 1888, once again in the house. And things don't go well for the house after that. So Ellen directly inherits his estate, and she ends up sharing the business with Frank, but they're just constantly fighting with each other. They can't stand being together. And they start launching lawsuits at each other, and it's just a bad time until 1902 when Ellen dies. So now the whole thing goes to Edward, who she legally set up as the inheritor. And naturally, Frank has a huge problem with this. So, but there's nothing he can do about it. So Edward in inherits the house. He moves in with his family. And then the deaths just keep going. Um, his, younger his youngest daughter, Rachel, dies from gastroenteritis in 1916. His wife, Bessie, dies in the house in 1951. And Edward is completely broke after years of feuds, the lawsuits, the mismanagement of the fortune. So it's gone. All the money's gone. All they have is this house. And he just, Edward just stays in there. He hangs on to it as best he can. But we come to the 1960s, and he just can't, he can't afford it anymore. So the story is that he loses the house in a poker game to a guy named Jay Stemmerman. But the more likely scenario is that he's so broke that he has to sell the house to this Jay Stemmerman guy who lets Edward, in return, stay in the house's basement for the rest of his life, which is exactly what happens. So he's, he just lives in the basement of this giant Victorian that used to be his um, until 1967, when once again, he dies in the house. And Jay Stemmerman ends up, he tries everything he can to keep it going. He turns into a boarding house. Um, he turns into a bed and breakfast, a kind of a hotel. None of it works. He ends up just boarding up the place and moving back to Florida. And then the house sit, then sits empty from 1967 when Edward died all the way up until the year 2000. And that's when it's purchased by Mark and Susan Vaux. Um, but it just seems like misery sticks to this place because things don't go well for them either. Um, they start fixing the place up, which is always a cause for concern when you're talking about ghosts. And... Uh, they end up seeing a bunch of stuff, hearing a bunch of stuff, and the, the, the two end up actually getting divorced in this time. But while they're there, the ghost hunters actually do an episode of this, which is kind of cool. Um, and they go through the whole thing and they basically say, you know, whatever, we can't really say it's haunted, but whatever, it's fine. Um, so they end up selling it to a couple 
named Lillian and Edwin, who are from Dorchester. And once again, they start seeing things and hearing things. Edwin starts hearing knocks on the doors. He goes, opens it, nobody's there. Lillian gets the worst of it. She just gets just just possessed one time. So Edwin hears this weird sound from the basement. He goes down and his wife Lillian is just there, just going to town on the, the dirt floor, just digging in a spot, digging and digging and digging. And she's just like not paying attention to him. So he kind of like shakes her. What are you doing? What are you doing? Are you she snaps doing? out of it. She's like, I have no idea what I'm doing. She didn't know she was there. She didn't know what was going on. She's just standing there digging. And turns out that they actually dig up a bone that looks a lot like a, a pelvic bone. And at this point, I think this is around the time that Ghost Adventures show up. And unlike the Ghost Hunters, the Ghost Adventures crew actually comes up with a bunch of stuff. Um, they're finding cold spots. I think they caught some EVPs. They're feeling negative energy. They're hearing things. So they're going crazy in the house, just having a great time. And, you know, they you know take some time. They take pictures with people outside. And I just found out today that, um, I can't think of his name right now, but somebody from uh, Massachusetts is their, like, writer. He writes their stories and he does their research for them and stuff. And he, like, has his own weird New England um, sites and books and all that stuff, which is pretty cool. So there's still a New England connection to Ghost Adventures, even without the house. I didn't know that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I just found that out today. Is is a fairly well-known guy. I can't think of his name. But <laughs> uh, if you look it up, you'll you'll come across him. He's been on TV a bunch here. Um, he also climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and has a book about it. Jeez. He's the one who comes up. Yeah, yeah. And he's the one who comes up with her stories and does her research. Um, so anyway, the house has a ton of deaths. Um, there's even this really weird one where 1963, back when it was a boarding house, firefighters get called to the to the house for a fire um, up in a bedroom. So they obviously they're run on up there and they're you know 1960 firefighting gear. They smash down the door. The fire's completely out. And the only things that are burned are a person named Eno Sayeri and his bed. And that's it. Nothing else is touched. Nothing on the walls. No, nothing on the drapes. Nothing. And this Eno Sayeri guy was just miserable. He was a Finnish immigrant, um, basically living there because he had nowhere else to go. He, his only focus was on drinking moonshine and getting as drunk as he possibly could on a daily basis. So nobody was really upset when he died. But the fact that it was just him and his bed that caught fire makes it sound a lot like spontaneous human combustion. And this Eno Sayeri guy used to hide his moonshine all over the house. There's a pretty good chance that Eno Sayeri is one of the angriest ghosts in the house who will yell at you, especially if you get close to the spot where he used to hide his alcohol. And there have been a bunch of EVPs caught about him, caught from him as well. Which, once again, you can you can really find these things all over YouTube. Um, but he really likes to yell. So some of the other ghosts are S.K. Pierce himself, because he died there. Um, and he has a big problem with women's modesty. Um, because, I mean, he's from the 1800s when he needed like 16 different layers of clothing just to go to bed. So cut to the modern day, if a woman walks into his house like, like in a sundress or something like that, 
he will just berate the hell out of her and tell her to uh, you know cover herself up because there's there's no space for no space for filth in the SK Pierce house. Um, and then one of the other their EVPs from a small boy. Nobody really knows. Small boy has actually been seen. Um, back when Edward and Lillian were living in the house, their neighbor had a small kid. And she comes over one day and asks Edward why he sees their son up in the second second or third floor window all the time, but they never see him outside playing because, you know, she has a kid and she wants them to play together. And Edwin is really surprised since he and Lillian have no children. Not only that, but when she says she was seeing this kid in their window, they weren't even in the house. They were back in Dorchester where they came from over that winter because... At this point, there's no real heating in the house. So it was just, there's no insulation. This is so old, so it was too cold to stay there. The entire time they're gone, people are just seeing ghosts up in the window. And the woman's son grows so fascinated with what he thinks is another kid next door that she ends up having to move away just for his own sanity. And then there are, um, there's a ghost. Um, Ellen Pierce is said to still walk, walk the house. Um, Psychics have done investigations there, and they think that there's a literal portal to hell uh, in the kitchen. And there's another uh, Maddie Cornwall. She was a Nova Scotian woman who worked for the Pierce family as a nanny. Um, she was born in 1959 and kind of took care of the house on a day-to-day -day basis. She died of an acute inflammation in her hip just two years after she got married. And she's actually thought of as one of the strongest presences in the house. She basically keeps all the other ghosts in check because she's the caretaker and she's not going anywhere. Um, there are also stories of a prostitute who was supposedly murdered in the house that's still there. It just goes on and on. And it's to this day, it's seen as one of the most haunted places in the area. And it's now owned by a company called the Dark Carnival. And they fixed the whole thing up. They restored it. And actually, anybody who wants can pay for a ticket. They can go check it out. And they can run their own ghost hunting investigation there. They'll have free run of the house. They can record. They can talk to ghosts. They can try to jump through the portal to hell. Whatever they want. So it's, 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 it's nice to see that kind of an ending come to it where it's Kind of something for the community that's been sharing the stories about it this entire time they kind of go in and check it out but that's the sk pierce mansion and i would highly re recommend looking at pictures of this place because when you see it it looks haunted <laughs> oh my goodness like round of applause that was so awesome <laughs> oh, thank you very much thank you <laughs> You definitely do a, a great job at, at sharing the history and the stories. And again, the the hints of humor in it as well. Definitely. I'm glad me and Bethany are on mute for our interviews because <laughs> it would have been nonstop cackles from us. Um, but oh, yeah, uh, I had to keep. I had to keep leaning back to look at you guys to make sure the jokes were landing the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> we struggle on Zoom because when we start cackling, your audio goes away. So we right, 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 right. <laughs> we now mute ourselves no. and just sit over here waving and and cheering and stuff. But <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely very good. Thank you, definitely thank you. All. It was it's a lot yeah. of fun. 
I think I'm I'm walking away with tear assing. Uh, I'm just gonna throw that. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite words. <laughs> I was like, "Yep, that's going home with me." <laughs> <laughs> I try to work that into every conversation I have. Tear ass down I, to the coffee so. shop right now. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody and wants oh them to drink tear ass into so the kitchen. Awesome. <laughs> This was so awesome, man. I, I just want to thank you so, so much for working with us on this. We know we've been trying to get you uh, to chat with us for a while now. So thank you so much. And uh, and really what we like to do is give you the opportunity to let people know where they can find you, um, how they can uh, you know stay up to date with everything that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, first off, thank you very, very much for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Um, it's my first time doing anything like this. Although, truth be told my career was in tv and radio so i kind of know where i'm coming from a little bit but um actually being in front of it is completely different but you guys really <laughs> you guys made it easy so thank you very much um so obviously my biggest thing is slightly odd uh that's the blog i've been running for the three years that i've been out here so there are a ton of different stories um all throughout new england um I originally started as a way to explore sort of central Massachusetts, but it's just been ballooning out to encompass the entirety of New England. Um, there are odd history stories, paranormal stories, hauntings, things like that. In fact, by the time this goes up, anybody who's listening and when they visit, they'll probably see the newest post, which will be on the redheaded hitchhiker ghost from Rehoboth, Massachusetts, which is a lot of fun and creepy and tons of personal stories about this guy. Um, so yeah, slightly odd Fitchburg.com. Um, I'm on Facebook. I interact with people on Facebook a lot. So facebook.com, um, slash the new slightly odd Fitchburg, or you can probably just search slightly odd Fitchburg and find me. I actually share weekly. Did you know posts about kind of smaller stories that I can't turn into whole articles. And it's a lot of fun, a lot of interaction. I would absolutely love to get more people to interact with there. Um, also on the Instagram, um, at SlightlyOddFitchburg. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, though, not as much. I think that's still my old account where I used to review dive bars. So you can search for that at Sweeney Dive Bars on Twitter. <laughs> um, yeah, that was back when I was in the city and there were tons of them around. Um, and uh, there's one other, uh, TikTok. Uh, TikTok at SlightlyOddFitchburg. Um, post a lot of stuff there. Also, have a YouTube channel where I actually, actually, you asked me if I ever had an experience. I said no, that's not true because I was convinced one time that I caught a UFO um, on my Ring doorbell camera, and I posted that to to my YouTube channel, and it was mostly because I had just finished a book called The Day After Roswell by Philip J. Corso, who was this guy in the military. And the book is all about him saying, yes, Roswell was real. There are UFOs all over the place. We're fighting them. And then I put that book down, finished it. And the next day I found a UFO on my ring doorbell camera. <laughs> so uh, YouTube at Slightly Odd Fitchburg. Um, I also do some work with my fiance um, at um, Paranormal. Paw as in P-A-W, Renormal, and Best Doggations on YouTube. 
where we go out ghost hunting with dogs and it's a lot of fun so that's another one to check out that's also facebook paw renormal invest dog um and finally i i hand make ouija boards actually um i make them from solid wood uh from ground up start to finish I sell those on Etsy. Um, they, I make them customizable. You can put your name on them. And these are like legit Ouija boards. Um, uh, it's made from solid pine or, you know, if you want something else, I do custom boards as well. Sand them down, make them nice, smooth, give them a ruddered edge, put the face on it, seal it all with, um, really nice and shiny polyurethane and then buff the whole thing until the planchette just kind of glides effortlessly around it as they were. And um, those can be found on etsy.com slash shop slash woodworking and decor. So I would love to get more Ouija boards into more hands because there are so many great stories that come from them. I'm not saying one way or the other. If you know, I, I'm not commenting on the veracity of the stories that come from them, but as long as you experience them, I think that's what really matters. And if you want a Ouija board where you will have an experience, it should be something that's made from, you know, a live piece of wood that was just in, you know, in nature a few weeks ago. So there's that um, Etsy slash shop slash woodworking and decor. And finally, I have a book coming out. Um, it should be coming out hopefully very soon it's published by weird darkness publishing um and it's called slightly odd fitchburg the odd and haunted history of central massachusetts and it's, it'll be available on amazon as well as i believe through WeirdDarkness.com. um i'll have it on my site slightly odd fitchburg i'll have it on the facebook page and all that stuff and it's a collection of stories from the blog along with some additional um, editorializing for me, I guess is a good way to say it. Um, and that hopefully is going to turn into a series of books, whereas I collect more and more stories for the blog that will turn into more and more books with more and more, you know, in-depth information and editorializing for me. So definitely be on the lookout for that. And there's one more thing. Oh, um, uh, like pretty much everybody else on Facebook and, and uh, YouTube. I have a Patreon as well, um, which I definitely have to throw that out there. It's um, patreon.com slash slightly odd Fitchburg. Slightly odd Fitchburg is basically my entire life. So just search those three words. Whenever you want to find something for me, you're going to come across it some way or another. Even if it's just, you know, drunk guy yells at UFO after reading a book about aliens in his underwear in front of his house in front of children but anyway um patreon.com slash um slightly odd fitchburg that's where i i have a reading list of you know odd history and paranormal books that i find interesting and i you know really think people should look into if they're into it um multiple tiers um you can suggest stories that I, you think should be covered with by the site you get a bunch of free stuff. I have t-shirts. I have um, stickers. I actually send people a Ouija board if they become members after 
for a certain tier after a certain level uh, amount of time. And on top of that, it's where I post exclusive stories that you won't be able to find on the site. One of them is actually one of the part of the Puck Wedgie story that you didn't hear today is exclusive to the Patreon. That wasn't planned, that just happened. <laughs> and um, I brought this. And um, uh, one other thing that I could think of was talking about just how crazy the Puritans were when back when they were in charge of the colonies back in the 1600s. Um, they were a deeply Protestant group who hated Catholics so much. Roman Catholics specifically, they hated them so much that they just deleted the names of the days of the week because they were all based on Roman gods, which the Roman Catholics obviously believed in. And they lived without the names of uh, the months at all. Because once again, it goes back to the Roman Catholics. So if you were a Puritan living back in the 1600s, every month would be a number and every day of the week would be a number. So if you wanted to meet somebody, you know, on a Wednesday in February, for whatever reason, you weren't meeting them on Wednesday, you were meeting them on the third of the second, which is mind-bogglingly stupid, and how difficult it would be to live your life like that. But they did it just out of pure, pure hatred like frothing spittle coming out of their mouths hatred for another group of evil for no real reason and yeah that's on there too <laughs> i think that's that's everything i can think of right now <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome and you are you are terrassing through old <laughs> and i fucking love it man you are, right, thank I'm, you very much i'm so excited to keep up with it um and really everyone go catch up check it out get a ouija board do it all and the book sounds awesome too um thank you so so much this has just been uh, a real good time <laughs> yeah thank you for that went a lot faster than i thought it was i felt like a really tear ash to that whole thing right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness well thank you again so much please enjoy the rest of your sunday and we will for sure be in touch excellent sounds good thank you very much We, we tore ass through that one, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> that episode was uh, definitely terrassable. <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> oh my goodness. Just what a good time. And like, seriously, like we were just stunned and, and sat in silence. Like most of it. Cause he was just killing it. Crushing yeah. it with the history. Yeah. He is such a great, like just uh, like radio presence, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> And uh, yeah, he's just a fucking fantastic storyteller. And again, I appreciated that he went through all kinds of histories. We got some stuff from natives. We got some Salem witch trial shit. We got some ghost adventure shit. We got a little bit of everything. And uh, and it was a real good time. Oh yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. And then definitely again, uh, but before we give it a cleanse, make sure you guys check him out. He's all over, he's on Instagram, he's on Facebook. Uh, he makes Ouija boards. He's coming out with his own podcast and it's just gonna be uh, very, very cool. Dude knows his stuff, so check him out. And, uh, and yeah, even though it was super great, we still gotta give this baby a cleanse. Let's do.
Take a big deep breath in. Release that baby out. Now we're ready to tear ass through the world. <laughs> I'm coming, world. I'm ready to tear that ass up. <laughs> that was a good time. That was a good time. Thanks for hanging out with us, everybody. As per huge. My name is Bethany. And I'm Leah. And we're setting off with Chubisitos. From these putitos. It's over. <laughs> <laughs>